For the last 2,000 years, believers have been known by and busy with good works. The world that Christians entered after the resurrection of Jesus had a colossal void in caring for the sick and the dying and the poor. Dionysius, writing around 200 AD from Egypt, describes the habits of his pagan neighbors this way. These men thrust aside anyone who shows any sickness or weakness. They keep aloof even from their dearest friends. They cast them out on the roads half dead, and when they die, they pass by on the other side and leave them unburied. It was a harsh world in the first century, a world in desperate need of charity, acts of mercy, and kindness. One historian said it was a world completely devoid of charity. But the early church changed all of that. Tertullian, the North African church father, writes around 220 AD, writes extensively of the church's diaconal ministry and the church's deacon fund by which they cared for widows and orphans. They would provide burials for the poor and sometimes fund the release of slaves. Christians were the first to build hospitals, Basil in Cappadocia, where, Paul, where Peter is writing this letter too in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Basil says in Cappadocia they erected a massive hospital around 370 A.D., the first one in the history of the world, which began a movement of hospital building on the part of Christians. John Chrysostom in Constantinople soon followed. Augustine in northern Africa followed after that. We have to ask the question, what specifically was it that moved these early Christians to such acts of compassion and charity? Nothing less than the repeated, pointed imperatives of Jesus and his apostles. And we'll see that today. But what we'll also see in our text is what makes these good works so astounding is that Peter commands that they be done in wartime that they be done while believers are fighting a multi-front campaign. Let me ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter 2. If you've never been with us before, our our practice is to preach through New Testament books consecutively in our morning service and Old Testament books consecutively in our evening service. Tonight we'll continue that pattern. We will be uh, continuing our study of the book of Joshua and Joshua 2. You can pray for me this week, this week, But for the next eight days, including today, I will preach 14 sermons. Not to you, but I'll be preaching at a conference in in Tennessee, 10 sermons this week, and obviously two more next Sunday. So my concern is that either me or the people hearing me will get very tired of my voice. So pray for me, for my stamina, for my kingdom usefulness. Let's seek the help of the Lord now as we prepare to open this word. Ever-blessed Lord, we will remain in our ignorance unless you enlighten us. And then, having heard the truth, we'll remain immobile unless you empower us to be more than just hearers of the word but doers also. So take hold of our minds now and instruct us. Then grab hold of our feet and move us into joyful, obedient living, we pray in the name and the mediation of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Hope you're looking at 1 Peter 2, the text that Pastor Anderson just read and you're hearing a moment ago, verse 11 and 12. Peter addresses his readers once again there in verse 11 
as pilgrims. He began the book this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 1. They're pilgrims, meaning they're transients. They're on their way to another country, a better, a heavenly country. They carry a different passport. They are on a pilgrimage to the city of God. Their citizenship, Paul writes, is in heaven in Philippians 3. This pattern began with Abraham and Jacob. Then after the exodus from the Egyptian bondage, as we are seeing on Sunday nights in our study of Joshua, Israel made the journey through the wilderness to the land of promise. That wilderness experience became the model for God's people on pilgrimage. God provided for them, protected them, led them until they reached their home. The pilgrim journey, by the way, is described all through the New Testament as the normal Christian life. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So the pilgrim journey is also our story. Now what you'll notice, I want you to look carefully at the text now for just a moment, just skim over those two verses in verse 11 and 12. Peter does not call believers in anything they do, whether it's their good works or their spiritual warfare, does not call Christians to flee from the world. Nor does he write to isolated pilgrims traveling a lonely way through the desert. What Peter is doing, notice very carefully, is he's writing to the scattered Christians as a community of pilgrims. They're the people of God in the world. These new covenant believers living in hostile places are not to regard Cappadocia or Bithynia. These are the two of the places he writes to in chapter 1, verse 1. They're not to regard Cappadocia or Bithynia as their home. Their true home, according to Hebrews 11, lies elsewhere. And so they are not to give allegiance to any nation. This is why Peter wants them to recognize who they are in relation to the surrounding world. Peter agrees with the Apostle John when John writes in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the the love of the Father is not in him. The believer is not to love the world. His loyalties are not here. Temporary residents don't get too involved in this world's affairs. No matter how important you are, even if you have economic or political status, You must walk with a deep sense of your transiency, just passing through. You're a pilgrim. King David, the most important man on the planet at that time, wrote these words. And listen to how he characterizes himself in Psalm 39. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger and a sojourner as all my fathers were. Certainly David owned property, he had a family and position of great power, but he confesses, and surely so must we, he confesses his temporality, the brevity of his life, and the fact that this world could never be his home. In the truest sense, he didn't belong here. And so the believer, look at verse 11 of our text, is always to be an outsider, one who doesn't fit in, one who is a sojourner and pilgrim. And if you are too comfy here, 
then you've not understood the nature of the Christian life that we are pilgrims passing through. So what Peter does is he raises now in this text, he raises this this amazingly complex web of difficulty. On one hand, he wants to talk about spiritual warfare. He, the, to these pilgrims, the apostle Peter reminds them that we are all fighting a multi-front war. And then, as I said a moment ago, but he at the same time tells us that we must be, as a sign of our redemption, deeply involved in good works. So let's think, first of all, about your biggest problem in mind, your internal problem. You know that every believer fights three battles, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every believer has an enemy within. Now, one of your big temptations is going to be to always externalize sin. Carl, my, my problem is the world my, out there. My problem is the devil right over there. Actually, your biggest problem is the flesh, far bigger than the world or the devil. And so don't trust any form of theology that says, well, it's the devil who's always out to get me. Yes, he may be, but he's small compared to the enemy within. In fact, every believer has a quisling within. Vidkin Quisling was a a Norwegian collaborator with Hitler and the Nazis in World War II. And the term quisling came to mean a willing collaborator who works evil from within. That's your flesh. And in fact, look at the way that Peter characterizes your flesh in verse 11. If right now you're starting to take insult and say, Carl, I I see it with the world, I see it with the devil, but you're talking about my heart and who I am. Are you saying that I have a heart problem? Yes, absolutely. Notice what Peter says in verse 11. He says of your flesh that it wars against your soul. And I want to begin by just trying to sweep away a lot of the silliness that's in the culture that maybe you found yourself singing or repeating or even giving out as counsel. All movie, music, pop psych urgings to trust your heart, follow your feelings, My friend, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Such counsel to follow your heart or trust your feelings is not just silly, but it's wicked counsel and horribly misguided when you understand the nature of the flesh. Look at verse 11, and let's be honest. What is the nature of your flesh? It wars against your soul, Peter writes. What is the flesh? The way the word flesh is used here, it doesn't denote the physical body. It means the whole man in his creatureliness, sinfulness, and weakness. And so, for example, when Paul writes about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, he lists activities of the mind, such as envy, and activities of the body, such as drunkenness. And so the flesh is human nature under the dominion of sin. So how are we as redeemed people to respond to the flesh? Well, the first thing is, is to be honest. Look at verse 11. To recognize that the flesh wars against your soul. Your flesh is your worst enemy. Constant, deceptive, and cruel. 
You must also fight against the devil and the word, and we'll get to them momentarily. But even those enemies, strong as they may seem, they absolutely pale in comparison to the power of the flesh. When the Apostle Paul can spend a whole chapter, Romans 7, bemoaning his struggles with the flesh, you need to recognize we find nothing similar in the New Testament dealing with the world and the devil. But Paul gives the whole chapter in Romans 7 to saying, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And what we are meant to understand is this. The flesh will battle you until your dying breath. And so how are we to deal with the flesh? Look at verse 11 again. Peter commands dealing harshly with the flesh. He says, you can't give an inch to your fleshly lust. That's why, here's the key word that he commands believers. Abstain. You're to respond to the flesh with absolute exclusion with violence and harshness. Paul writes in Romans 8 this way about the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the body. Take the knife of Scripture and cut off the deeds of the flesh. You're to go to war against sinful practices and thoughts. Don't be reasonable with the flesh. Don't give the flesh second chances. Deal with the sins of the flesh preemptively. Plan now. Look at verse 11. Plan now to obey this and to, to abstain from them. Colossians 3, Paul says the exact same thing. He says, put to death fornication, uncleanness, and evil, and coveting. Jesus speaks of it in an even more graphic way in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches what, what theologians have called radical amputation. He says, if your hand offends you, chop it off. If your eye offends you, Pluck it out. Obviously, he's speaking metaphorically. Therefore, if we took this literally, most of us would have nothing left but a belly button. <laughs> but the theological term is the mortification of sin. By the way, men, you have a golden opportunity to study this subject. I'm so thankful that Pastor King is studying this subject with men on Thursday night. Sign up with him. Grab him today before he makes it to the fellowship hall and say, I need this. I need to study with other men. I need to be held accountable. I need, I need this. And so when do you meet? I'll buy your dinner, Taylor. He'll probably take you up on that. So what is it that we're to do? Look at verse 11. Abstinence from the deeds of the flesh. It means mortification. Mortifying the flesh means you must know your weakness well, your personality, temperaments, habits, and attitudes. If the premier sin of your flesh is anger or lust or pride, then study that sin well. Perfect your understanding of it so you'll spot it when it begins to raise its ugly, hideous head. To mortify the flesh means that you avoid the occasions and places and relationships that the flesh loves. In other words, do what Peter says and abstain from them. To mortify the flesh means to be busy in vocation and calling. The flesh loves idleness. So abstain from it. 
To mortify the flesh means controlling all bodily demands, whether sleep or food or whatever. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and I bring it under subjection to practice mortification of the flesh. And if you've been studying with Taylor on Thursday nights, he's probably already quoted John Owen who says this. But John Owen writes, to practice mortification of the flesh, you must first of all recognize your indwelling sin for what it is. Don't be easy on yourself at this point. Most of us are outstanding at rationalization. I'm not a liar. I'm just really creative in my speech. The flesh must be acknowledged, flushed out into the open. It can't be killed until it's flushed out. To grow in your sanctification demands transparent honesty about sin. It means not just admitting that you're a generic sinner, but saying, I'm a liar. I'm an adulterer. I'm a worrier. And then bring your sin into the light of God's presence. To see sin clearly, to motivate your heart to be done with it, you must take it where you can see it in the light of God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And that place is the cross. And so, in your mind, take your sin to the darkness of that Friday afternoon outside the the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Watch the reproach and rejection of Jesus as he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see your sin. And say, Lord Jesus, the reason for your pain and your agony and your rejection lies right here in my sin. You can't go that far and not want to put sin to death. Did Christ endure such torture for your sin? And can you still practice with delight? As well, if you're going to mortify your sin, you have to recall the shame of past sin. The comparative principle in the Christian life. Listen to Paul in Romans 6 when he says, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Paul is saying, do a comparison. Your new life and your old life. Why return to the old manner of life when you've entered into the joys of eternal life? Why live as the old man? Another step in mortification is remember that you're united to Christ now. You may distance yourself from a a sense of Christ's presence, but you still remain united to him so that when you sin, you drag Christ into your sin. And then if you want to mortify the flesh, plead for the fruit of the Spirit. Cry out to God the Holy Spirit to root out the weeds and produce lasting, growing spiritual fruit. And so notice carefully what Peter's imperative is to pilgrims passing through, to abstain from fleshly lust. What he's commanding there is nothing less than do hand-to-hand combat with the first and greatest of your enemies, the flesh. That's your internal problem. And then Peter moves to your external problem, the world. Look at verse 12 carefully. Peter says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so notice, Peter has moved quickly now, without even sort of an explanation, from enemy number one, your flesh, to enemy number two, the world. 
And notice what Peter promises. You will be slandered by the world. Notice in verse 12. He says that when they speak against you as evildoers. Peter doesn't say, now some of you, you might run into this very unfortunate circumstance in the world. Unbelievers may, they just may on a bad day speak against you. That's not what he says. Look at verse 12. He says that when, not if, but when they speak against you. Now, where's Peter getting such an idea? I want you to see that Peter is not in the least original. He heard a sermon. He heard a sermon on this. He heard a sermon, and so did thousands of other people. He heard a sermon from the lips of Jesus on this issue. Look back to Matthew chapter 5, and I want you to notice who Peter is plagiarizing from. It's actually not plagiarism. He's quoting the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the Lord Jesus describes what our situation in the world is going to be, that second enemy, not our internal enemy of the flesh, but our external enemy of the world. In Matthew 5, verse 10, Peter was sitting right there, front row, when Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Persecuted by who? By the world. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus here, and this is what Peter is drawing on when he puts pen to paper to write First Peter 2. Jesus here is pronouncing the Christian to be in a state of blessing when the world purposefully says, don't hire him. He's such a killjoy. He's such a stickler on business ethics. Don't invite her to be in our group. She just wants to talk about Jesus. To be cursed and slandered by the world has been the lot of God's people for thousands of years. You remember what David wrote 3,000 years ago in Psalm 69. He says, those who sit in the gate speak against me. I'm the song of the drunkards. Jesus himself was slandered and called a glutton, a drunkard, Beelzebub, and more. Think about how the Apostle Paul describes all the hatred and persecution he's received. He says in 1 Corinthians 4 that he's been reviled and defamed. You see, slander and persecution, what Peter tells you to be prepared for back in our text in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. He talks about being spoken against as an evildoer. Slander and reviling is as much a mark of the Christian as is poverty of spirit, spiritual hunger, and weeping over sin. We have the universal principle stated in 2 Timothy 3 when Paul writes, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus <coughs> will suffer persecution. Paul writes again in Philippians 1, it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. We're not to think this is an oddity. Peter's going to go ahead and write a little bit later. In fact, you can just peek across the page at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, when Peter says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is normal that the world be mocking, slandering, 
reviling, gossiping about you. The Apostle John sums it up the clearest when he writes in 1 John 3.13, Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. You see, the world, the world, the wicked under the dominion of Satan, the world hates the righteous. Jesus told believers, so in John 15, that the world would hate them. The fact that believers are being slandered, even persecuted, even murdered, is nothing new under the sun. This week, I get bulletins from groups like Voice of the Martyrs, Persecution Org. This week, I received updates from Burma, the Congo, and Iran, three separate continents, where believers this week, fellow believers of yours, have been arrested, tortured, and killed for one reason, because they're believers. It's interesting that Jesus goes on to tell you how to respond to persecution. He says in Matthew 5, in that same text that I just cited a moment ago, that the way to respond to such slander and reviling is rejoice and be exceeding glad. We're not to retaliate like an unbeliever or sulk like a child or lick our wounds and self-pity like a dog or put on a stiff upper lip like a stoic. What then? We're to rejoice. Even leaping for joy. We see the disciples obeying this in Acts chapter 5. Listen to these words. After they'd been beaten, the Sanhedrin commanded they should not speak, that is the disciples, in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And so the disciples departed from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why does Jesus command believers? Because what I want to push past is when you look at our text in 1 Peter 2, 12, I want to push past the fact of reviling and slander. It will happen. If you're a believer, it's going to happen. You'll be slandered, persecuted, excluded, mocked. What I want to get to is how do you respond? Why does Jesus command believers to rejoice when they're reviled and persecuted? Well, first of all, because God, through persecution, is showing your identification with Jesus. You're so clearly identified with him that people see something worth reviling in you now. And because as well, God uses persecution. He uses mockery of you. He uses gossip to sanctify the believer. The hatred of the world, the attack of the world is God's chisel to shape and chip away the imperfections. Reviling and persecution always have the effect, at least in true Christians, of humbling you, making you more patient, more prayerful, and more dependent upon the Word and the Spirit. This treatment, in case you're thinking it's a rarity, Carl convinced me, this treatment by the world of the believer is absolutely common in the New Testament. For example, when you read through the book of Acts, you'll find 56 instances of persecution in 28 chapters. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, here's how the world views us. Fools for Christ's sake, as they're being beaten, reviled, and persecuted. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds his readers that up until that moment, he's been beaten with 39 lashes on five separate occasions, beaten with rods on three separate occasions, stoned once, left for dead multiple times, 
So much for the prosperity gospel. The same goes on today. Look backwards just a few years to the 20th century. You had mass killings of Christians from China to Sudan to Russia to North Korea. In 1915, 700,000 Christians were slain by the Ottoman militia in Turkey. In the 1970s, under Idi Amin, well over half a million believers were slain. And now, in the 21st century, the systematic persecution of Christians by the world has sped up, mostly in Muslim countries. The point that Jesus makes clear is when you're being persecuted, reviled, and excluded for his sake, you're taking a stand with that great company, the elect. When you're being reviled for standing with Christ, you're standing with Moses and Isaiah, Daniel and John the Baptist, William Tyndall and Jim Elliot. And so let me ask you, believer, look back to our text in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Are you looking for the applause of the world? If you are truly a believer, the world will never praise you. They will slander you. If popularity of being in the right group, the right club, the right whatever is important to you, you will never be popular with the world. And so notice then what Peter does, and this is astounding because right now your head is reeling. Carl, the reminder again that I'm at war. I have an internal enemy of the flesh. I have an external enemy of the world. And in the midst of that, Peter tells the believer to do something breathtaking. Look at verse 12. He tells the believers what to do in the face of the world's hatred. Namely, to persevere in consistent good works. Now, here's the sequence. Look carefully at verse 12, and I want you to follow Peter's logical sequence. Step one, believers are to do good works. Step two, These good works will be observed by the world, those people who hate you, remember? Third, step three, this will cause unbelievers to glorify God. (coughs) Once again, Peter here is quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not the first, I certainly want to be the last, not the first exegete of this to recognize that as Peter is writing these words, it's as though he's remembering the exact text of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. You remember what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Peter's actually just quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount here. Now let me remind you, what are good works? We have a whole chapter. Isn't it interesting? Of all the doctrines our, our, our Westminster divines, our fathers in the writing in the 1640s could say, this deserves a chapter. This is a whole chapter in our confession of faith on good works. Often believers are skittish about even using the word good works because of Roman Catholicism's insistence that good works are somehow the instrument of our justification. But we need to loudly repeatedly affirm that good works, even wartime good works, good works is we're fighting with one hand the flesh and fighting with the other hand the world. Good works are the evidence of your conversion. They're the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the absence of good works is the evidence that there is no work of redemption occurring in you. Now let me define what a good work is. 
I'm using here the definition of our confession. A good work, first of all, must be in conformity with God's word. It has to be that which God has commanded in Scripture. Second, it must spring from a good conscience, in sincerity of heart with right motives. Third, it must be done in the name of Christ. Paul says this in Colossians 3. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. Fourth, it must be done for the glory of God, not for self-aggrandizement. And fifth, it must proceed from faith that rests upon the merits of Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's by faith, not to earn a righteousness. Think a little bit more about these good works, these wartime good works that you and I are to be about. They must be the imitation of Jesus, who we are told in Acts 10, he went about doing good. These good works we find in Matthew 25 are the evidence of saving faith. These good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, are ordained, decreed for believers to do. These good works, we're told in Philippians 2, are empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. These good works strengthen a Christian's assurance, and they silence, we'll read very quickly, they silence the critics of Christianity. Think of some examples of good works that you might be involved in today, tomorrow. Taking a meal to someone who's just come home from the hospital. Giving a ride to somebody who doesn't have transportation to worship or to work. Cutting a widow's grass. Protecting the unborn. Caring for the sick or the poor. Ministering to orphans. Visiting prisoners. By the way, these are all activities Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25. You remember what he cites at the last judgment when he turns to believers on his right and says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you visited me. By the way, this issue of good works, Scripture is shot through with examples of good works. You have in Leviticus 19 where God ensures his people will be busy about good works, so he establishes gleaning laws. So after a, a landowner has harvested his grain, there's provision made for the poor to come in and work and go back over the field again and feed themselves. In Proverbs 22, thousand years before Jesus, God promises blessing to the one who's generous to the poor. In Isaiah 10, God promises judgment on those who oppress the poor, the widow, and the orphan. When Paul speaks, gives his last speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says, By the way, you must care for the weak. <clears throat> Paul, writing in 1 Timothy 6, Instructs the wealthy to be rich in good works. It's not, by the way, that the believer is to do his good works to be seen by men. I want to speak to motive here for just a moment. It's not that the believer says, I'm going to wait until enough lost people, enough angry worldly people are walking by. Then I'll cut the widow's lawn. No, that's what the Pharisees did. Jesus rebuked them for that in Matthew chapter 6. Whether it was their praying, they did it on street corners. <clears throat> Whether it was fasting, they painted their face white so people go, look at him, he looks so pale. He must be fasting again. Or their acts of charity where they said, everybody notice I'm dropping these coins in the charity pot? No. It's not that the believer does these things to be seen by men. It's that the believer is so constant in doing good works, it's unavoidable that sooner or later he'd be spotted by the world. 
This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus is speaking to the impossibility of a true believer not having an overt public impact for Christ. The nature of the salvation Jesus gives is it will always have a public outward good works expression. The believer will shine brightly. He will shine constantly. He cannot help it. Can the sun stop shining? No. Neither can the believer stop emitting light. Remember who Jesus said these words to in the Sermon on the Mount? A few thousand poor peasants. Jesus intimates when he says, you're the light of the world. He's intimating these people are to be the first flickering torch that will spread all over the globe. They're not just to be the light of Judea or even the light of the Mediterranean, but the light of the entire world. Notice it well. The Christian is not hiding. He's not afraid of the world. Even though the world is slandering, gossiping, reviling him, he's a light in the world. He doesn't shine behind high walls with security systems and barbed wire. Jesus told us to be lights in the world. When Jesus came, we're told in John chapter 1 verse 5 that the light was shining in the darkness. He was around drunks and adulterers and liars and the profane. This is where he lived his sinless life. It's only there that the Christian witness can be born and influence for Christ can be effectively exerted. Yes, your workplace is dark. Yes, your school is dark. Crooked, perverse, profane, and opposed to God. But it's there that the child of God is to shine. You see, lights only work in dark places. In the workplace... The employee shines because he's marked by scrupulous honesty and diligent labor. In the classroom, she shines because she studies with zeal and she learns her subjects to the glory of God. In the neighborhood, the believer shines because they're kind and gracious to all their neighbors. In Jesus' day, in Peter's day, there was a a separatistic, a monastic community of the Essenes functioning. They'd withdrawn from the world. And they called themselves the sons of light. But they took absolutely no steps to let their light shine in the darkness. Jesus doesn't say in his Sermon on the Mount, go join with the Essenes. No. He tells his followers to let their light shine right in the middle of a dark world. The place where they'll be slandered and reviled by the world. How do we apply this word? Two very simple applications. First of all, no honest Bible reader can possibly say that God doesn't care about helping the poor, the widow, or the orphan. No believer can escape the gospel duty to do these good works. Look at verse 12 very carefully. Do you notice what Peter is telling you as a believer to do? He's telling you to be involved in good works. And so let me ask you, To whom are you ministering good works? Calvary Home for Children? Piedmont Women's Center? If not, how do you plan to repent and do those good works that are commanded? My friend, it's inescapable. The believer will be doing good works as the outflow of the grace they've received. Where are you planning to do those? The second application 
I wouldn't be putting the textual emphasis in the right place here if I emphasized the wrong element. When we think about our spiritual warfare, everyone under the sound of my voice, every believer is fighting the exact same three-front war. The world external. The devil external. But then there's that cancer of the flesh. What you must go away from this text with is a resolve to fight against the flesh. Look carefully at verse 11. Where the word is told to you what to do with the flesh. To totally abstain from all that it offers. Do you see that word there in verse 11? To totally abstain from all that it offers. As you think on this word, can you say, first of all, that you each day view your Christian life as a war? Do you grasp that you are in a battle to the death? And here's where I must recommend, and let me recommend men again, to grab Taylor King and say, when can I study with you guys who are studying this? Grab one of these Christian classics. There are so many books. I, interestingly, in the last couple of weeks, I had two different guys email me and say, Carl, what are the most important books that I need to read for my Christian life? And on my list was one of these books. William Grinnell's book, The Christian in Complete Armor. Men, put down the, the light stuff. Put down the fiction and pick up Grinnell's Christian in Complete Armor. Because what it is is, 1,100 pages of how to fight against the flesh. If you're to overcome the evil one, you must know you're in a fight. The Christian life is a a battleground, not a playground. There are no neutral observers. Jesus said you're either for him or against him. There are no conscientious objectors. Christians are are not allowed out on the grounds that blood makes them squeamish. Every true believer is in the battle. And so let me ask you, how are you today battling against fleshly lusts? If you're not, could it be it's because you don't yet belong to Christ? Let's pray together. O sovereign Lord, we say with the apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How we praise you that you have graciously broken the enslaving power of the flesh and have made atonement for our sins of word, thought, and deed. O sovereign Lord, you are a good God. You have done good to us. You saw us in our helpless estate and had mercy on us. But your kindness to undeserving poor and wretched sinners did not end there. Were we to calculate your compassion to us, our calculators would overload quickly. You have now commanded us to imitate you. Help us now, even today, to imitate your mercy by giving help and kindness to widows and orphans and the unborn and the downtrodden. Break through our selfish, uncompassionate hearts and conform us to your holy pattern that men, even worldly men, might even see these good works and praise you.